you have houses, maybe you have duplexes or apartments that you rent out, and try as you might, every once in a while, you can't help it, you just get some bad tenants. And I've had stories that you've told me, probably none better than the hat makers who rented their, their place out, they're actually family home, they moved out of it and rented it out to two lovely girls, they thought were very trustworthy, it turns out they weren't, and these two lovely ladies hang, hung out with kind of a rough crowd and they they harbored a fugitive, actually a felon, a known murderer who was on the run from the police, and the police found out where they were staying, surrounded the hat maker's house, broke the door in and arrest, arrested the felon, and completely traumatized all the neighbors. So there was, there's that, okay? Now, most of you haven't had bad tenants like that, but today we're going to tell um, a story, we're going to read a story that Jesus told, rather, out of Luke chapter 20, and he tells the story of some really bad tenants, and they were that bad. Okay, let's read this out of Luke chapter 20. on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers, so he had tenants there, and he went away for a very long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So they were paying their rent through giving fruit. But the tenants beat him, this messenger, and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So these aren't good tenants. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him because, I mean, he's my family member, a family member of the owner. But when the tenants saw him, talk the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be our great high-class people, Okay. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? That's the question that's asked. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid, or more accurately, let this not be. May this not be. Wow, I want to point out a few things. This is a very misunderstood teaching out of the Bible, so I can't wait to teach about it. Let me point out a few things about this scripture. The first is this. Jesus will mess with you. I want you to hear me say that, okay? If you're a new follower, you need to hear me say that. Jesus will mess with you. I'm with people as long as it's kind-hearted. There's a guy, Norman Cousins, famous author way back when, and he had the greatest sense of humor. He maintained his laughter and joy even in difficult times. And at one time, he was in this long stay in a hospital, and he had a nurse that had no sense of humor at all. She never laughed, never smiled. She was just Nurse Ratchet, just one of those nurses, all business. And he decided, I'm going to mess with her. So she came in one day and said, hey, I need you. She gave him the cup, said, I need you to fill this. I need you to give me a urine sample. He goes, okay. And she turned her back, and he went into the bathroom. And instead of, he snuck his apple juice in there. Instead of giving a urine sample, he poured his apple juice into the cup, gave it to her. And she goes, wow, we're a little cloudy today, aren't we? And he goes, let me see that. And he grabbed the cup. He goes, we are. I better run it through one more time. And he drank it right in front of her. I instantly loved Norman because of that moment, okay? He messed with her, but in a kind-hearted way. Jesus is always messing with people. He does surprising things. He says surprising things. He nudges people out of their comfort zones all the time. When you read through the Bible, nobody was immune to his messing, okay? Nobody, absolutely nobody. And this parable is a great example of this. Let me explain. When they read the Bible, they assume that Jesus hated the Pharisees and religious leaders, and nothing could be further from the truth. 
He loved them so much. He loved them so much. He wanted them to have an abundant life when really all they had at that time was a religious life. They were following all these rules and rituals, but they were missing out on the good stuff, which namely was a relationship with the very Son of God who was standing right in front of them. They were so goodness God was missing out on humans that when other people tried to worship Jesus during his Jesus parade, they actually tried to silence them and stop the worship. They were that blind to what God was doing, which, by the way, reminds us of something. It is possible for people, it's possible for any of us, to be so into what we're doing for God that we miss out on God. We're busy in all this religious activity and behavior, and we think we're helping God. If we're not careful, we could actually be working against God. So that's just something to be aware of, okay? That actually describes um, so many people's lives nowadays. I want to put up a quote by a guy named Shane Claiborne. He's one of my favorite authors. And I'll read this for you because it's kind of small font. I developed a spiritual form of bulimia where I did my devotions, read all the new Christian books, saw all the Christian movies, and then vomited up my information on friends, small groups, and yeah, thanks for that. But it never to die. I gorged myself on all the products of the Christian industrial complex, but was spiritually starving to death. I was marked by an overconsumption, but malnourished spiritually. And then that last line, which I highlighted in the book, suffocated by Christianity, but thirsty for God. That describes so many people. They're suffocating in religion, and yet they're thirsty for God. Jesus loved these religious leaders, and he wanted more for them than be suffocated by their own religion. So he messed with them. He wants more for us, too, so he will mess with us. He'll mess with us for a reason, in order to transform us, in order to change us into better versions of ourselves, versions where we actually live, act, love, and talk like Jesus, where we're willing to do crazy things like forgive other people and love our enemies, actually give me in our community, versions where we're aware of God every, every breath, every relationship, every experience. That's what he wants for us, okay? So get ready for Jesus to mess with you because he doesn't want you to settle for anything less than that version of your life. One pastor said it brilliantly. He said, the truth will set you free. And we quote this verse all the time. The truth will set you, but then he added, not until it's done with you. Isn't that true? The truth will set you free, but not until it's done messing with you. That's what you got to realize. There was a book named by Michio Keiku, and he's a physicist, and um, but it wasn't about physics. It was called the, the Future of the Mind. And in this book, he mentions this section. This is the only section of the book I read because, woohoo, okay, over my head. But in this particular section, he's mentioning that some neuroscientists had figured out how to do some experiments where they could actually talk to and get answers from different sides of a person's brain for the same question. Most of you know that our brain is divided into two hemispheres, and the left is the logical side. It's very practical and rational, and the right is more artistic and emotional and intuitive. They figured out how to do these experiments where a person can answer from different sides of their brain. Now, the left side controls the speech center, so it would say the answer, and the right side is mute, but it could spell out the answers with Scrabble tiles. Freaky. This is just freaky. The first person was asked this. What do you want to do for a living? 
And with the left side of his brain, the very rational side, he said, I want to be a draftsman, and that's such a practical job. Pays the bills. That's just a good thing to do. It's, it's very rational, very practical, okay? But with the right side of his brain, he spelled out with the Scrabble tiles, race cars. <laughs> totally different, okay? One person then was asked this. This is what captured my attention about this section. Uh, do you believe in God? With the rational side of his brain, he answered, I'm an atheist. But with the more artistic side of his brain, intuitive side of his brain, he spelled out with Scrabble tires, I'm a believer. I love that experiment for two reasons. First of all, it reminds us there's a little bit of atheist and a little bit of believer in every single one of us here. Doubt and faith and mystery are great dance partners inside all of our lives. If you think being a person of faith means you never have doubt, you're completely wrong. Being a person of faith means you have doubt and you wrestle with it. Oh, my gosh, okay? And the second reason I love this experiment is this. I believe this experiment was showing people what they wanted to do instead of what they thought they should do all the time. I believe it was showing them what they were hoping for. I am so grateful that Jesus, in a kind-hearted way, always messes with us always nudges us out of our comfort zone because I believe what he's doing is he's being like a neuroscientist and he's saying, let me show you something. Let me show you the life I want for you. Let me show you the life that you really want, the life that you're hoping for. Not the life that you think you should have, but the life that you're dreaming about. That's what I believe he does, okay? Second thing I want to show you out of this parable has to do with this phrase, crazy love. God is so much like this vineyard owner, but let, and I'll explain that, but first, let me do this. I'm going to sum up the entire Bible, in case some of you haven't read through the entire Bible. I'm going to sum it up in like 30 seconds, okay? This won't take long at all. And this is just from me, because I've read the Bible over and over again. So the Bible goes like this, okay? In the beginning, that's where it starts, okay? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and everything in the earth, and the pinnacle of his creation was mankind. He did this because he thought we would like it, all right? And we did for about 27 minutes, okay? And then we got selfish and we screwed everything up. And now we lost this intimacy we used to have with God in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And we found ourselves existing in this broken relationship with God somewhere a little bit east of the Garden of Eden. But God would have none of that, so he came after us. He's constantly trying to woo us great word by the way woo okay but he's constantly trying to woo us back to him so he sent us prophets and preachers and singers and poets and one really cool talking donkey and finally he sent his very own son somehow squeezed into human skin all in an effort to get his message across to us that he loves us deeply still and to this day he's still pursuing mankind the end. That's the Bible in a nutshell right there, okay? And it reminds me when I thought of that, I had this class in, in high school, and we had to watch movies and then write papers about them, like summing them up, and I actually took a class like that in college, totally easy A, okay? Watch a movie, write a paper, whoo-hoo, okay, here I go. And this movie was called Breaking Away. Please watch it if you can ever find a copy. It was so great. It's about the, this town bike race, and it's between the poor people and the rich people, basically. And this one particularly poor kid, kind of nerdy kid, fell in love with one of the rich girls. But she was way out of his league, and he knew it. But he was going to get her. He was going to win her affection. 
So it culminates in this scene where he goes to her college campus, gets her attention by throwing rocks at the window. She opens the window, and he serenades her so badly, so uncomfortably. You're watching the movie, and you just sweat. Have you ever watched a scene in a movie like that? It was like, I'm dying for you, buddy. I'm sweating right now. I'm blushing and sweating for you, and, and you're just pixels on a screen. It was that bad. But I thought about that, and that's kind of the story of the Bible, that breaking away scene, because God is that relentless in his pursuit of us, and the whole Bible bears witness to that, because his love isn't normal. It's ridiculous when you read about it. It's a crazy kind of love. This vineyard owner kept sending people, different people, to these tenants in hopes that they would receive his message, but every time it was rejected, and God is so like that, he keeps relently, relentlessly pursuing people, hoping that they'll finally receive his message. But his message is different than the vineyard owners. It's not, hey, you owe me money, time to pay up. That's not God's message to us. His message is, I love you. Won't you finally embrace this invitation to this divine romance that I'm offering you? God is serenading the world. That's what he's doing doing that all the time and fortunately god handles rejection much better than i do when i get rejected i'm just gonna be honest with you and none of you i don't think you rejected me while you're here so okay but um i've been rejected a lot pastors just part of the deal okay been rejected a lot and usually my first gut level response to rejection is the same as yours i think wow didn't see that coming that really hurt you're dead to me now. <laughs> that's kind of how, in a nutshell, how I deal with rejection, okay? I'm not saying that's good. I'm just being honest with you, and I'm so glad God is better at it. This is why, by the way, love songs crack me up. The other day I was listening. It's a fairly new love song. It's called You Are the Reason, and it's this beautiful duet, a beautiful song. But part of the words go, I would climb every mountain and swim every ocean just to be with you. And I'm listening to the song as I'm driving, and I'm going, no, you wouldn't. You're so full of it. No, you would not. At the first hint of trouble and rejection, you wouldn't hike up Pisgah or even swim across a creek on a sunny day to get to her, okay? But the good news is God's love is not that fickle. It's a love that's crazy enough to keep at us even when we reject him over and over and over again, even when we ignore him, even when we walk through our day completely unaware of him. He just keeps coming at us. If you don't believe this, read Psalm 136. It's your homework for today, okay? Psalm 136, very short. It's, it's a poem. It's a beautiful poem, and in it, it's mentioned 26 times that God's love for humanity is unfailing. 26 times. There's a reason for this. Any of you parents that have kids know what the reason is. If you say something once to your kid, they don't even hear you. They don't even acknowledge your presence. If you say it twice within a period of a minute, they might kind of be aware that there's another person in the room, but that's about it. They don't get it. But if you say something 26 times in a period of three minutes, they finally go, oh, Dad is kind of serious about this. He actually wants me to listen and acknowledge his presence and hear what he's saying, okay? That's what God is doing in Psalm 136, okay? He is saying, I'm going to keep coming at you with my stubborn, rejection-absorbing, crazy love. In fact, right after Jesus, just a short while after Jesus uttered the words of this parable, he died on the cross in this remarkable, 
display of the lengths God would go to to get his message across to us that my love is never going to stop. Lastly, last thing I want to mention out of this parable has to do with new beginnings. Again, as a movie buff, I have watched so many movies that I was completely enraptured with, and I thought, this is one of the best movies I've ever watched until the end. And the end was like, you just killed this movie. You, you just Now I've wasted two hours of my life. Here's the movies, just my list of bad endings. You don't have to agree with me, but in my mind, there are bad endings. The Green Mile. Oh. Fried Green Tomatoes. Watch that Sunday. Romeo and Juliet. How'd that ever get famous? Okay, that's like the worst ending ever. And the number one bad ending in my life, Old Yeller. You gotta be kidding me, the ending of that, okay? Please hear me when I say this to you today. That God is not a God of bad endings. He is very much a God of new beginnings. In the section we just read today, it appears that this parable has an absolutely awful ending. We read it, okay? Maybe some of you caught on to it. The ending is the vineyard owner finally gets fed up with these bad tenants, comes into town, and he offs them. He kills them all and then gives the vineyard to somebody else. Did you not think to yourself, I know you're reading the Bible, but you not think, why is that in the Bible? That's the most horrible ending I've ever read, okay? Fortunately for us, that's, there's something I need to explain. Luke, for some reason we don't know, left a very important part of this story out. When you read the same parable in the book of Matthew, Matthew, thank you God, includes it. And here's the part. When Jesus finished the parable, he asked the religious leaders, well, what do you think this vineyard owner is going to do? And the religious leader said, well, he's going to come into town and kill these people and give the property to somebody else. Jesus didn't come up with the bad ending. The religious leaders did. That was their part, their addition to the story. That's why my favorite line out of this parable is this, and I'll pop it up on the screen for us. May this never be. When the crowd that was listening to Jesus heard the awful ending that the Pharisees and religious leaders offered to this parable, they said, may this never be. In other words, no, that ending would screw up a really cool story that Jesus just told us. May it never be that that's the ending to this story. It's kind of like watching the old yeller when you go, are you kidding me? You got me all attached to this dog. And then, spoiler alert, you shoot the dog, okay? May this never be. Somebody please someday write a remake of Old Yeller where the dog lives, okay? Here's the good news. Jesus agrees with the crowd. He doesn't like the Pharisees' bad endings, and there's two reasons I believe this. The first is this. Their ending makes God look like a monster. Their ending makes God seem like this kind of God that loves us until he doesn't, that loves us until we finally tweak on his last nerve and finally wear out his patience. And then he just wipes us out. And unfortunately, a lot of people believe that we have a God like that. God is nothing like that because God is just like Jesus, and Jesus never did that. Jesus shed his own blood, not other people's blood. Second reason I know he hates this ending is because the story of Jesus' life isn't a bad ending. The story of Jesus doesn't end with him bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross, and then the end, or we'd be screwed. It ends with him rising a new life, to a new beginning on Easter, okay? The same holds true with us. We have a new beginning to look forward to, not a bad ending. I summed up the Bible really quickly. I want to share a quote with you. Oh my gosh, this is money. 
write it down, memorize it, take a picture of it. Get it from the computer lady, Joni, afterwards. I don't care what you do. This sums up our lives. Check this out. From the compost of all our efforts, God brings glory. By his grace, we are the water made wine. We are the dust made flesh, made dust made flesh again, which is so great. Next screen. We are the whores made brides and the thieves made saints and the killers made apostles. We are the dead made living. That is like the best summation of our life I have ever heard. Can I get a hallelujah to that, okay? Oh, my goodness. Let me end with this. Hopefully this will emblazon this point into your psyche. Check out this scripture out of the book of Ephesians. This is out of chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Can we pop this up on the screen, Joni, computer person? What? Oh, I need somebody's Bible to read it. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, except I can't read it. Come on up here. <laughs> this is Brandy. She runs InterVarsity, by the way, and she's phenomenal. She's spoken for me several times. Ephesians 1, verse 9 through 10. Sorry about that. We didn't get that up on the screen for some reason, okay? 1, 9, and 10. Oh, just yell. You, I know you well enough. Very good. Give her a hand, ladies and gentlemen. This, this scripture, and you can look at it on your own, is a giant run-on sentence because the Apostle Paul wrote it, and he's like the king of run-on sentences. But it's a whopper, and it's telling us that God absolutely digs. He absolutely enjoys it. It gives him pleasure to bring things into unity in Jesus, okay? In Greek, the phrase to bring unity means to sum up or recapitulate. It's actually this crazy big word, and I believe we have this screen. Do we have this one, Joni? Okay, I didn't forget this one. Yeah, check out this word. Anakaphalia, oh, I can't even pronounce it. And I've tried over and over again, and I even practiced. Anakaphala, that's what it is. Anakaphala eosathai. Okay, it's like the Bible's version of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and it means to sum up, or a better way to say that is to retell. So stay with me here. This is where it gets juicy and good, okay? This verse is saying that God is having a blast retelling the story of our world and our lives in a different way. And when he retells our story, he leaves the bad, uncomfortable, and difficult parts in there because they don't ruin the story. They somehow make it deeper. And we don't normally think like that, right? But it's totally true. I'll give you a great example. I ran 23 different middle school camps where we went for a week to different camps all over the place, sometimes in Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Catalina Island. We went there for 10 different years. Yosemite, we went there for a few years, and it was great. But there are really bad parts to taking over 100 middle school kids on a road trip like that, okay? There were bus breakdowns. Well, there was one particular bus that caught on fire, but that's a whole other story, okay? There were wild boars that wandered into camp on occasions on Catalina Island. There was the burnt pot roast that they made us eat. It was like eating wood on one of them, okay? There was a whole blob incident. I don't know why all these start with B, but they just happened to, okay? There was all these bad things and hardships that happened. But when I tell the story of these camps, I don't leave those out. I add them, especially the barf boat experience. I've told you that one over and over again, okay? These were bad things, but they don't ruin the story because the story ends in a new beginning. The story ends in these life-changing moments of godness 
that kids had with Jesus when they collided into him during these week-long camps. God is retelling the story of our lives, and the nasty, weird, difficult parts are included. You want to wipe them away and forget about them, and God doesn't. He says, leave them in there. They're part of your story, but don't worry. I'm retelling your story, and it has a new beginning, not a bad ending. It ends with me summing everything up and bringing everything into unity with me. And that makes sure that the bad parts don't get top billing. That gets top billing, and then we take it from there. So God is anakafold. Uh, he's doing that. That's what he's doing. Anakafalafasizing our lives, okay? Let's just say he's summing everything up in Christ, because that's a better way to say it, all right? Let me pray for us today.